Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name is Craig Forces, and I'm here with Stephanie Carvin for an emergency broadcast, a message from Big Academia. And this is where, this Stephanie, you, you do the klaxon that comes with the cell phone. Well, I was going to go, do I just go beep? Like, right. that goes with, like, the little broadcast thing. Right, exactly. So, beep, this is a test, beep. Okay, sorry. <laughs> I think so I've ruined it already is, for our guests. I've already ruined it. <laughs> this, this is really off-brand for us. What are we doing? Um, so today we're doing a podcast that's hopefully going to be a good guide for all the profs, academics out there, maybe even some people who just host online meetings and are having to switch to online, given the kind of social distancing and uh, self-isolation that we're now having to deal with as, say, a globe, uh, as, a, as a civilization. So we wanted to give some tips because we often do a lot of our work online. I mean, regular listeners will know that this is something that that we often do is use online software in order to conduct conversations. Uh, but we also have some really great friends who have agreed and volunteered to speak with us today about how uh, to go about this new way of education, which will probably be in place for the next two or three months at least. So I want, I'm very happy to introduce Peter Sankoff, who um, has his own podcast, which is sometime a rival of ours for the Canadian law blogging awards the clobbies uh pawn order but who's also an expert at um running his own online courses as well as we have david hornsby who is uh i'm gonna get if i get this wrong i think i get fired because you're the vice president of uh teaching at carlton university associate vice president for teaching and learning but don't worry your job is secure Thank you. Thank you very much. And so thanks for coming on today. And I think, Craig, we were talking before we started, we have a little bit of a loose structure, but you know, with all good intelligence products, we're going to do the bottom line up front. So I think what we're going to do is ask, you know, the three of you, Craig, you've done a lot of online learning yourself too. I should, I should be very clear about that. What are your you know, top two, three bottom up line points that you think people need to know with regards to doing online teaching and learning. Thanks, Stephanie. And I think probably uh, our guests will have a lot to add to this. But I want to first say that we're talking about dealing with moving a course online on two days notice at the end of a term, including by people who've never used online before. So the advice I'm going to give really is emergency advice. And that emergency advice is as you move online, the preference really should be to do what I call asynchronous teaching. Take your passive material, that is your traditional lecture, pre-record that and deliver it in a different way. Uh, usually either you know, as simple as a Dropbox or if you've got uh, a content management system at your university like Brightspace, which allows you to upload materials, take that passive lecture material, pre-record it either as an audio form or as a narrated PowerPoint. And we can talk about some of the apps going forward and provide that to your students and then preserve the streaming interactive stuff for questions and answers. Um, if you try to twin those two things together, passive delivery with questions and answers, I think the risk there's a high risk of failure, and just because of some of the the challenges in what's a fairly unnatural uh, mode of delivering for most of us. So that would be my top line: think asynchronous teaching. Uh, Craig, if I can just do a quick follow up there, just quickly, does that also include class presentations? So for those of us who had scheduled class presentations, would it be better for the student groups to actually pres- like record their own presentation and then do an online uh, question and answer afterwards? Yes. All right. And, and so I'll say that the PowerPoint narration feature is probably the easiest way of doing this. Most people will have access to PowerPoint through Office 365 or on there computers and, and narrating a PowerPoint that is recording an audio as you scroll through the slides is very, very easy. 
Now, the, the challenge will be delivery. That is, once the students record that PowerPoint, you're going to have to put together a, a means for that PowerPoint to be delivered to the other students and to you. And again, that could be a question of using a shared Dropbox or a Google Drive or, again, a content management system on your university like Brightspace that allows you to do that. I, I also just want to put a plug here. Um, it, one of the issues will be, I think, that the files that are created in this manner uh, in this online teaching environment can be very large uh, files. They will have many gigs. And if we're talking about students who do not have ready access to Wi-Fi as they're more or less confined to home or who have data plans and relied on, on cell phones, as you start consuming huge amounts of data for these downloads, you will there will be equity issues. And that's even assuming they have a device that's capable. So all these things should be going through the minds of the professor. Uh, it is possible to stream presentations, and that might be possible, I think, probably in a smaller class. But the risk is that a student who's already going to be stressed about trying to do the presentation is now trying to figure out a technology that they've never used before. And I think that could be quite prejudicial. Let me just stop there because I know others want to weigh in. So, Peter, um, perhaps I can ask the same question to you. What's your bottom line up front to online teaching newbies? So it's funny um, listening to Craig talk about that. And um, I, I certainly understand his point and I, I share it to a, an extent. But um, my first tip is sort of to approach it from a different angle um, in that I would not take the approach right away to go one way or another, because my number one uh, point is to understand um, and soothe the expectations of your students. So I would not choose one method one way or another. Um, I do think that AC Synchronous is a good idea for people who are at all concerned, but the first thing I would try and do is manage what your expectations are and what your students' expectations are. So what I've done in terms of panel presentations, and I recognize that I'm probably not the norm in terms of comfort with the, uh, the technology, is I held meetings on Friday with all my classes, and I th that's my number one tip I've given to every prof. What do your students want, and how do they feel about this? So the first thing I did was I had a I have a, a small group class of 11 and we have some pretty unique um, assessment procedures so I brought them all together and I said look this is the situation here's what I think we can do but what do you want to do what do you feel comfortable with and I found that by assessing out what my students felt about this I was able to first of all put them at ease and by of course I hosted them on zoom which is a pretty advanced platform but I was like look what this platform can do how do you feel about this and my experience is that the students are actually the students I had seemed quite comfortable once they were able to suss out and try out the technology and get a feel for it. And we have immediately moved to have all our presentations and some of our other uh, assessments, which I'll talk about later. We've just said, okay, well, we're going to do them. And the students were able to meet with me personally as well. It wasn't like there was a peer pressure thing because, of course, there are private chat features on Zoom that they could send me their thoughts. And I invited each student to have private meetings with me to discuss this. So, so I feel that like the idea of how you proceed should be, it, it, number one, assess what your own expectations are. Where are you on the technological spectrum? I, I totally agree with Craig. If your problem is like you are used to giving lectures and this makes you uncomfortable, asynchronous is the answer. I, I completely agree. But I feel like if you're anybody who's like, you know what, maybe I could try this and do it. I mean, I met with some profs who were pretty 
pretty on the, you know, I don't know what the term is. I don't want to use Luddite because I don't think that's fair, but like on the, the a-technological side of the spectrum. And once I made them feel comfortable about what they could do, they were at least open to trying it. And I do think that and the first thing I told them was meet with your students first. How do your students feel? Have a meeting with your student that allows you to suss out the technology and try what you want to do before you jump in. So that would be my number one tip. Uh, look before you leap. That's an excellent idea. Um, I, I appreciate that. So, uh, David, perhaps you want to come in with your bottom line up front, um, given everything that's already been said. So, I mean, I think I absolutely agree with everything that's being said around the asynchronous, about touching base, testing things out. Um, I think, though, one of the main principles to keep in mind in this particular moment is keep it simple. Um, you know, we've got a lot to do. Um, we've got a lot to figure out as a community, as an institution, the relationship with our students, the trying to complete the term, get marks in, all that sort of stuff. But, you know, as much as possible, keep it simple. Think about what your core priorities are. So, for example, you know, the course I'm teaching uh, right now this term, I've realized the core priority for me is to get feedback on the essays, to make a space available for my students to be able to submit their presentations, uh, and then to, you know, be able to provide a, a meaningful, accessible uh, moment uh, for them. I've realized that not the important piece, the, the unimportant piece in this moment is to continue to try and meet. Um, now, that's something that I've, you know, that's, a, that's the prioritization I've made. I know that's not going to be the same for everybody. So I'm not pursuing Zoom. I'm not pursuing uh, other sort of technological platforms that may enable me to give my lecture or the seminar in a, a asynchronous or even synchronous fashion. What I've decided to do is, okay, I'm gonna use the learning management system. I'm gonna create uh, the space for the students to be able to submit their, their assessments and which will enable me to sort of see the end of the semester. So each and every one of us is gonna to have to make that type of assessment. Um, and it's gonna be I mean, based on what we feel comfortable with, but you know, if we're guided by the principle, keep it simple. Uh, and see this to the end, then I think we're in good stead. So if I can, then, um, you know, I, I think I got four major themes out of that. I love the idea, just keep it simple. Don't overthink this. Figure out what your priorities are and, and focus on that. Secondly, figure out what your students are comfortable with. Figure out, like, what their needs are. And as a part of that, I think, Craig, you mentioned the equity issue, which I think is really important. One of the things I did in my, I figured Thursday would probably be my last seminar. So trying to figure out um, who may need um, assistance with get, getting access to the materials, uh, Wi-Fi issues, things like that. I think one of the positive things is that most of the telecommunications companies in both the United States and Canada have removed certain caps, so, so that may help. Uh, and then finally, um, realize that what works in a normal classroom setting isn't necessarily going to work. So the idea of using asynchronous teaching may be something you have to switch to if you're used to giving a lecture and then having a question and answer period, because just delivering it and then having question and answer is probably not going to be as effective. So I think that's a really good way to start off with. Uh, the next thing I thought we could talk about just briefly would be like, what do you guys actually do? Like, what are your experiences with this online teaching generally? Uh, and what kind of courses have you used it in? So I've done this in a bunch of formats. I've been experimenting with this for years. Uh, Craig and I are old hands. We we uh, we were, I think, the first professors in law to use the flipped classroom. So I've done this in part already um, in law. Sorry, I should say. Like, there have been. Sorry, can you just explain what you mean by flipped classroom? 
Sure. Flip classroom is the situation where the lecture component of the class is taken out of the classroom. So essentially we record, uh, I, I have online about 150 pre-recorded lectures that are available to everybody on my website. So you can go and find them covering a range of criminal law and evidence topics. And the way that worked was I just figured out what I was doing in the classroom in terms of lecture. And I just tried to extract it so that what we could do in the classroom was much more advanced problem solving. So my flipped classroom is a lot of problem solving. It's just constant question, answer, working on problems in small groups, et cetera. It's a very active class. So, so I've already done that. But then I found what happened was for some of my other classes where I wasn't quite using the flip lecture in, in full, I started experimenting with some other things. So one day I had to miss one of my flip classrooms because I had to be away and I didn't want to cancel and reschedule. I was already behind. So I created a mock flipped classroom where I did the whole video. I did a video with pauses and I allowed them to work in groups and I had questions and I, I imposed Q&A. Like it was some pretty advanced stuff in terms of what I was normally doing. But like I experimented with, well, how can I try and make the same experience as what I'm doing in the flip classroom? And I've been doing that in a number of different ways, sort of experimenting with uh, video classes and trying to have Q&As that worked. I've never done what I've done here. And, and I should say, um, I'm probably the only person here or anywhere in Canada listening to this podcast who's going to say like, you know, this is a terrible situation, but it's one that's left me really excited at the possibilities because for once I'm finally freed by all structures. Like, it's like, it's great. I, I see it. And I, and I do say this as much as I, I totally agree with what David and Craig has said, you know, keep it simple. I'm in agreement. I, I, let me just say, David, I am blowing that out of the water. Like I am not keeping it simple. I'm going for as many advanced features as I can try because I see this as an experimental lab because I feel like I can handle it. I, I don't advise that to everybody, but I will say this, look for the opportunities that are available. I think there are opportunities available in this, even if you keep it simple, that you won't have in your ordinary class. So depending on what you're doing with your students, Try and see what's out there because I do think there are opportunities that, that could stimulate your imagination. And I do think most of the profs out there are capable of like thinking outside the box a little and trying some stuff if you have the right spirit. And, and that's, that's my other tip, I would say, by the way. Uh, approach this with a sense of optimism rather than desperation, and I think you'll get more out of it. You will convey the right medium and the message to your students, and you will also experience it with a sense of maybe a little bit, a little bit of sense of adventure. Right. So anarchy at the U of A. That's <laughs> what I'm going for. I'm going, I'm going for the, the, full, the full medium, yeah. Can, right, can okay. I just say, can I just say that, Stephanie? And Craig, like, I'm, I'm pedagogy crushing on Peter right now. I mean, I think this is a really like, absolutely. Uh, you know, I'm really pleased he's excited by this. And, you know, it, part of me is also seriously excited. I think, you know, you know, as we think through though, what the opportunities are for a lot of our colleagues, they're, they're going to want the um, easy solutions or rather how to adapt, how to cope. And I think, you know, when we're, when we're talking about this shift in this particular moment, you know, as much as we can make these tools accessible and make it realize that they don't actually have to throw out the baby with the bathwater, the better, right? So in my own experiences, right, I've been using online courses with the learning management system and, you know, utilizing discussion boards. Um, back when I was based in South Africa, I, right, I, I did a course between my university at Vitz University in Guelph. Um, where we actually brought students together and we, you know, had time to construct that, right? We had time to construct the discussion boards, set the, the sort of multimedia pieces up and to make that uh, learning experience really engaging and meaningful. 
in this particular moment, you know, it's going to be okay. Um, if your primary mode is, is lecture delivery, um, how can we uh, help realize that um, students can, you know, you can still convey and provide information to students without necessarily having to do a fully pre-recorded lecture um, that comes with all the editing and all that sort of stuff, you know, so there's, there's easy, um, there's easy sort of shifts that can be made, namely, you know, instead of doing a lecture, why not simply say, go do the readings, uh, you know, put up a set of a series of questions on, uh, on the learning management system, or even an email, and give students a cap uh, the capacity to respond to those, either in a discussion board, or just by simple responses to the entire group. Right, okay, so no, I think that's that this is all very helpful. Craig, do you want to talk about your experiences briefly, uh, and what you've done in the past? Yeah, so I, I've done both synchronous and asynchronous online teaching. And, and so like Peter, I've I've uh, converted my classes to a flip format, taking the passive learning out, turning them into podcasts, which like Peter are available to the world. In fact, I'm in the midst of contemplating a rebuild of my administrative law class for reasons you and I have discussed, Stephanie, with the Vavilov case. Uh, definitely so, going definitely to top the charts, Craig. <laughs> it's going to be like so, a whole other brand for us. So uh, like Peter, I, I had confessed, I mean, you, this is, you know, we specialize in intrepid podcasting geekery. Well, this is a different sort of geekery. I, I, I'm, I'm like our colleagues here in the sense that I really see this as an opportunity to do some experimentation, especially since the technology has moved so quickly since I first started flipping, right? And so there's a whole bunch of new uh, different uh, gizmos that I, uh, might be deployable. Uh, I, I will say that... Um, that the synchronous teaching that I've done uh, has used Zoom, which is the software we're on right now. And uh, in that Zoom format, we were patching in two different classrooms uh, in North America and then students at various law schools across the country. And it actually worked really well. Um, Zoom is, has been a very stable platform. It's not one supported by the university. So I was using my own personal account, which I considered a real investment actually. And we can talk about some of the tips. I think Peter has some tips as well as to how, how to make that work logistically, because there's things that I have learned about how to avoid uh, uh, train wrecks in, in terms of using that technology. And I think it's probably applicable to not just Zoom, but other online uh, streaming platforms. Uh, yeah, so let me so, stop there. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say, let's, why don't we then move to how do you adapt some of your lectures? How do you adapt some of your seminars? Now that we have, you know, we have bottom line up front, we've talked about experiences. So how, you know, can you offer any tools for someone who say has to deliver lectures online? Peter, you, you, um, I think you have some experience with this. Yeah. So first of all, like uh, one of the things that's really important is to think about your platform and, and unfortunately the platform matters. And we had a, we had a talk, uh, we had a meeting at U of A amongst, we just brought together all the people who were the most tech savvy in the faculty. And we had a quick discussion. And the truth is the, the platforms really matter to what you're trying to do. Like, again, whatever you want to do, think of the platform. And I say that because like I started out using zoom like Craig, and I didn't realize I was using the optimal platform. <laughs> until I started using some of the others that the university was suggesting. And some of the others were either too complicated and they could do what Zoom did, but in a much more complicated way, or they didn't have quite the functionality that Zoom offers. And, and I just look at this. I, the funny thing is like people sort of look at me and my faculty, like I'm some tech guru. And the truth is I am, I am really not. I really, I'm not Craig. Craig really understands the tech better than I do. I don't understand tech, but I'm really good at using tech. So I, 
I look at it and I'm like, okay, well, how does this you offer in terms of user friendliness? So like, does it allow me to use my PowerPoint seamlessly? Does it automatically react to who the speaker is? Does it have functionality that's easy for the students? I look at it right away from what is going to be the best experience for everybody concerned. So I keep to David's idea of keep it simple. So if I'm going to give an online lecture, I want the software that allows me to do that. And my faculty was right away, well, the Google Meet software is free. Let's use that. Well, it's free, but it also doesn't allow you to seamlessly integrate PowerPoint slides in a way that I thought was functional. And it didn't have a, a sort of a, a chat, um, sorry, a discursive function that I thought was as, as good as Zoom. So right away, I was like, let's keep it simple and choose the platform. But let me give you my three quick tips that I think are important for whatever you're doing. One, if you can't mute the participants immediately, certainly instruct all students to mute when they come in. It's really important because if they're not muting, everybody's hearing what they're saying and it's really disruptive to the experience because students can come in and out of the class and it's just, they don't recognize it. So Zoom has a feature that allows you as the host to mute everybody and by all means enable that because it's not default enabled. So I enable mute everybody when they come in. That's really key. Second, um, I was going to say, sorry, just before yeah. you move on to the number two, I mean, that might be something that's worthwhile doing is spending, you know, building in an, ex an extra like five minutes to explain the software that you're using for the Percent. No doubt. That's why I had the meeting with my students. So that was my first tip before. Meet with your students, show That's them right. how everything works. And I go through, I went through every aspect of the Zoom platform with my students in a pre-class stuff. So when we start on uh, uh, Wednesday, we're just jumping right in. So number one was mute. Number two, it's really important and you really don't think about it. It's like anything else. If you go to a lecture and you're in a physical lecture space, you're going to come in with whatever it is you're going to do. So if I have a case and a thing and a thing, I'm going to set up my desk. But people don't think to set up their windows in a way that makes sense. Like they just start and they and then they expect to be able to jump to everything. But I'm like, you've got to plan your space. So by all means, first of all, shut down all the windows that you're not actually using, like your email, your your, your safari, like anything you're not going to rely upon for the lecture has to be shut down so that you have the ability to seamlessly move to what you're doing. So the only things that should be open are all the things you need. One of the beauties of this, I had a, a prof ask me, well, what do I do with my lecture notes? Like I usually make lecture notes and I'm worried that it's not going to be seamless. I'm like, it's better than lecture notes because you can use the screen as a teleprompter. You just shorten your window and you have the, the Word document on the side. And I'm like, like, you can do whatever you want with the windows. Just be sure to close the ones you don't need and get the ones ready. And the third one is this. I've had people tell me that they're concerned about the chat function. The, the idea, I, I, I'm just going to say on record that I think if you're doing a straight up lecture and you feel competent to do this so that it's not asynchronous, I, I'm of the, I love the chat feature. I have a very quiet class this term. And when we held our first online meeting, I had like 15 questions. It was fantastic because what I have learned from law students, I don't know if this applies to every student, is that a lot of students don't want to talk if they think that the others are watching them. But the beauty of the, the online platform is that they can send a private chat message just to you. And I think that's great. And I, I find this really useful. The problem with the private chat function is that if everybody's sending you chat functions, it's very hard to keep up with all the questions as they're coming in. 
But just remember that you run the class. It's not like you have to throw it open to anarchy. So I would just like, I was doing this and I was just like, okay, everybody hold your questions for a second. I'm going to take a specific question and answer time. And also when I have too many questions, I just tell them hold for a minute. Like you run the class so you can dictate how many questions are coming in at once. And I think that's important. Don't just give in to whatever is coming up. Anyway, those are my three quick tips. Those are excellent tips. David, do you have anything there that you'd want to add? I mean, to the online interactive lecture, I mean, I think, again, it's the coming back to the basic principles of pedagogy, right? I mean, I think um, I think Peter's really capturing the opportunities with the, the flipped element and the opportunities to sort of have students uh, be giving questions and, and maintaining, you know, for you to maintain control. I think the other piece here is don't forget the engagement element. Like, don't treat this as an opportunity just to speak at the students uh, and have uh, sort of typical classroom moments where they can raise their hands and, and you sort of call upon them. I think you still have to put in place the idea that students need to be engaged. You know, if, it, if it's face-to-face, whether it's face-to-face or whether it's online and you're operating in an interactive or synchronous type of environment, students are going to zone out after 10 to 15 minutes if all you're doing is speaking at them. So you got to think really clearly in the ideal context, obviously, um, of, of how you're going to continue to engage them online. So that's going to result in switching up your pedagogical strategies. I'm a big believer in what I call the 15 minute rule, which is, you know, every 15 minutes changing your pedagogical approach. Doesn't mean you change your content, but it changes the way in which you talk about it or the way in which you're engaging with it. Um, you know, so that means, you know, you can talk for 15 minutes in that passive uh, type of way where you're doing the traditional lecture, then you integrate a piece of multimedia or you turn it around and have a problem type discussion um, with that gets students involved in giving their input. It's, it's thinking about, you know, switching it up so that students continue to continue to be engaged. And that that's really important. Great. Thanks. And um, Craig, how, how have you adapted uh, your online, your teaching to online? Yeah, let me pick up on a couple of themes. First on the engagement part, I, I agree absolutely with what both uh, Peter and David have said about engagement. And I, I actually kind of hope that forcing people to think about having, having to maintain engagement will actually improve people's responsiveness to engagement in general in their teaching so that we don't have sage from the stage sort of teaching going forward, which I think is probably good for the middle ages, but not so great for now. But uh, the bottom line uh, for me had for engagement- Can I just interrupt great. Craig for a second and just say, I'm now pedagogically crushing on him now too. Just wanted to put that out there. <laughs> I'm so glad this has just become like just a pedagogy love-in. It's what, it's what we always intended with Intrepid Podcasts. So please. <laughs> well, and so, and that's why I'm a big champion, by the way, of, of, the, of the asynchronous approach where I take the passive right out because I find it actually quite difficult in a classroom to change gears between passive and then more active. And because they become, the students become habituated to the passive and then shifting gears is often quite challenging. But, but uh, if you are going to do that, if you're going to have uh, a, a bundle of passive and active in a streaming a Zoom conversation or something else, I would make a couple of, of specific uh, tips along the line that Peter. So first of all, the, the Zoom software and some other software, I believe like Adobe Connect, allows you to share your screen. And so that means you can share your PowerPoint. I mean, there's not really much virtue in your students seeing your face, right? So while you're sitting there lecturing in your pajama bottoms, you can share the screen and, and it shows uh, your PowerPoint presentation. I feel exactly. seen. <laughs> and that's a very useful uh, feature. The second thing is I would advise all- And, and anything else, of course, <laughs> anything else you want to put up, right? Right, like a video, yeah. like a YouTube video or whatever. Yeah. It, it, just, it just screencasts whatever's on your screen. 
Second thing, use headphones, right? So you use headphones uh, or a good external mic and your students should also use headphones to avoid reverb. And also a very sensitive mic that's open to the room might, might pick up room noise. And so suddenly the screen is a cacophony of different um, people's images popping up depending on room noise in the background. Three, uh, use the hands up function. So Zoom and some other platforms have what's known as a hands up function where you can signal that uh, you have a question of the speaker, right? So Peter's just demonstrating that right now. I see for all of us are now seeing a little a blue hand pop up on the screen. Uh, it's very difficult to intervene uh, uh, proactively in an ongoing conversation online, especially if there's a bit of a delay uh, in, the, in the voice. So the hands up function is a great way of managing the conversation. And then I'll make a point about Socratic teaching, which is really important for law schools and law professors who do use Socratic. So one of the challenges I think for Socratic teaching, especially in a large group, will be as you run down your call list. And so Socratic teachings, you have your list of students and you call upon them and you have a discussion back and forth, you know, what's the ratio of this case, et cetera. Um, the problem is that if you've got a class of 90, all of whom are muted, there's going to be sort of a lag as the person suddenly realizes they've been called upon, tries to unmute, and then, and then they're saying, what was the question again? Uh, so uh, the, the challenge, I think, for Socratic is to have a, a call list that you give your students in advance so that your students know that they're the chief interlocutors for that particular session. And they can remain unmuted or they can be on watch and they know that they're going to be called upon and they're not going to feel stressed and there's not going to be sort of this really awkward uh, delay as, as people try to figure out where the mute button is. The last point I'll make, and it's an equity issue, look, if you're going to prepare a lecture and you're going to do this online and your students are doing this on their cell plan and they're running into data plan issues, or even if you're doing an asynchronous lecture and you're uploading it as, a, as an audio file, you're, you should be prepared to share your lecture notes, right? So there should be a written form of what it is you're about to deliver. Um, and I think generally we have to move that way for universal learning purposes anyway, uh, for equity reasons. But especially in this environment where it's less likely that you'll be speaking extemporaneously, uh, certainly for pre-preparing lectures, um, our administration is asking this of us. You have to prepare, be prepared to share those lecture notes for the students who don't have access to the devices and who are going to be falling off the back end of your class. Um, I think that's great. Can I, mean, I just add, can I just oh, sure, follow please. one point that Craig made? Um, also in terms of that, I think Craig, just to follow up a little further, um, I think Craig's right about providing stuff and we have advised... I, I'm as guilty as this of any as anyone. When I use a PowerPoint, I'm sometimes tinkering with it right up to the last minute. I'm just doing it, and and I I always say as a theory, I want to give it to them in advance or whatever. I, I think here it's become essential for both equity reasons and other reasons. Like as you point out, Craig, like some students might not be able to follow on video. They may need to follow on audio bandwidth only, and that's a very real possibility. And as a result, um, I think like things like any slides, any reference references have to be provided in advance. Like I do, I do like the surprise format because some of my questions function better when they're in surprise mode. And I think at least at the start, I'm leaning much more towards providing as much as I can to students in advance, just because I think it's, we have to anticipate potential problems with the technology. I was going to say that too. And I think, I guess the other issue with regarding to equity is just um, if you have students who have audio or visual 
issues. I mean, that's something you're going to definitely also want to talk to your equity office about. Most universities have have these kinds of offices that assist with with learning with students who have some kind of of issue of doing that. So that might also be uh, something to do if you are aware of students in your class or asking them to come forward and saying, you know, actually, I, I have trouble with these kinds of, of things. Just And I think making as many resources as possible and as many ways or formats as possible is probably a good way of getting around that too. So that's another really good piece of advice. So, so Stephanie, this one, we've been talking about streaming a live lecture. I, I just want to make a point about if you choose to do, go asynchronous and, and record a lecture. So GarageBand, that's what we use for this podcast. Uh, when we're not using Zoom, GarageBand on your Mac, you can record audio. You just speak it, and it just convert it right into an MP or an AC file. Uh, it's very easy to do. You can find YouTube videos anywhere. Uh, that will allow you to do this. We just put out a guidance to our faculty, which we're going to open source on how to do all this. Uh, the If you're using a Windows-based machine, uh, Audacity is a very popular piece of software. It's free. Just download it. Again, it's almost plug and play. And this allows you to create audio uh, uh, presentations. If you want to preserve those PowerPoint slides, again, I would recommend just using the record function in the PowerPoint software itself and just narrate your PowerPoint slides as you skip through them save the file and upload it. If I could just add in on to that too, like if you're going to go down this road, also think about the packaging and how you do it is right. Um, you know, we often think about doing our lectures in sort of a half an hour, 45 minute, an hour long slots with the online approach. Think about doing it shorter. Um, it, that takes a lot of stress off of you as the, as the instructor in part, because then you can, you can sort of, you can package things in, in quick snippets uh, and then that means that you're not like if you make a mistake, then having to go back and start again or having to do all sorts of editing. Uh, if you can sort of focus in on particular subject matter, uh, give a quick snippet of it and then, you know, end that recording there, do a new one to start the next topic, et cetera. And now I want to weigh in on both these points because they're both good. I just wanted to say quickly, uh, in terms of the audio recording, um, I, I have no problem with the tools uh, Craig's used. But I wanted to add that um, for Paw and Order, we use believe it or not, QuickTime, which is so easy. Like the QuickTime interface is about as easy as it gets. You put record audio recording and there's a record button and you hit it and that's it. It doesn't allow you to do fancy edits or anything like that, but it's very straightforward if you're just going to do a straightforward recording. So I quite like it. Um, and on the second point, I, I completely agree. Um, my videos are deliberately short for that reason. I have to, I have found that what's easier is like 15 to 20 minutes. I mean, they were designed for the flip classroom, so they could couldn't be an hour long. But what I found is when you take a lot of the idea that you have to make it an hour, that's what some people will be thinking. And I'm so glad David brought it up because it's right on. You just, you have this thought that, well, my lecture is an hour, so it should be an hour. I'm like, well, if you take out a lot of the conversation and the, the, the hello and the whatever, and the intro, intro discussion and all that, like I found that like I could get my core lecture down to like 20, 30 minutes. And, and it is easier to do shorter things. And I think you, you do have opportunities to structure in that way. I think there's very few academics who find it easier to do things that are shorter, just based on my knowledge of academics. Um, but, you know, this is a good time to try it. And in, 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 the, in the policy world, we are always, you know, telling people do short, do short. Well, guess what? This is, this is our time to shine. So I'm also cognizant of time. We did want to make this a massive podcast. So one of the things I want to do is just do a quick across the board, uh, final kind of summary of an issue that I think is also going to be on a lot of people's minds 
which is marking. How should we go about marking different kinds of assignments? I mean, I'm used to using our, our content management system for marking, providing it gives you the opportunity to provide feedback right on there. But like what happens if you're grading presentations? What happens if you're grading exams? Can you even do online exams? So I think any helpful tips here would be great. So Stephanie, let me jump in here on this. So I don't think, you know, papers aren't affected. We've already talked about doing presentations. We started with that at the beginning of our, our talk. I think the real question is invigilated exams. And so these would be exams that would be in the classroom with an invigilator. And the invigilator is there to prevent academic fraud, right? Collaboration between students or, you know, sell calls to, in our context, sell, sell calls to your friend who's a lawyer to ask some question that's on your law exam, right? So it, it, we're not going to have that environment because, at least at our institution, we are not going to have in-person exams. And so the question is, what do we do instead? Well, you know, the, the most likely prospect is a lot of people will move to take-homes. Um, and then the take-home exam can be delivered in different ways, in, including through the content management system like Brightspace. Or uh, we're investigating whether we can use our existing computerized exams. So we have a system that basically locks down people's laptops in the classroom. And they type as if it's a glorified typewriter. Uh, well, the virtue of that, even in an uninvigilated setting, is that it uploads automatically to the cloud and then to our academic office. So we're investigating whether that can be done remotely by students who are not in the classroom environment. Uh, the, the other thing that we're going to do, I think, and we haven't quite decided this, is you know, we're going to have to have our students swear affidavits uh, and, and impose an honor system effectively, but, but one in which they put on paper that they will not collaborate, that they will maintain their discipline in terms of maintaining academic standards. And, you know, in a law school, it's a pretty serious offense. If uh, there's an academic fraud issue, it might affect your ability to be called to the bar. So I, I don't know that's a viable solution everywhere. And, and I think it's a work in progress. And I'm not sure that I have a silver bullet on this. Um, why don't we go to Peter and then maybe we'll go to David for some final thoughts. I, I honestly, everything Craig says, um, I have been thinking about, I have not, I have been, uh, I've been operating on a need to do basis. So my first thought has been the course. And I will just say, I've had all the same concerns that Craig has, and I'm not sure what the answers are. Um, I certainly, I'm aware of studies that show that getting them to swear an acknowledgement does help. It's certainly a helpful thing. I do think it will reduce fraud. I do think it brings home the seriousness of the event. And I still worry. I worry that the incentives to go outside the box are so large that I don't know how to fix them. And I'm, I, for me, of course, Craig, what it does is it gets me to rethink my strategies for examination. And that's where I'm at right now. And I haven't finished that process. Just to give you an example, I have become recently, uh, and this would get us into a whole other talk if we get into it, but I have become recently a fan of doing part of my exam as multiple choice with explanation. I'm a big believer believer in it. I've, I've learned how to structure the questions in a way that allows them to be more detailed than base knowledge. I love them. I think they're great. I think they work for both open and closed book. They are, to me, the most vulnerable form. If students want to share answers, it's so easy. Like It's not a short answer. They just text to the other guy, here's what my answers are, what are yours? And it's it just seems so vulnerable to me that I want to try and minimize vulnerability. And I, I'm still working my way through how to do that. But there's no question that I want to be able to set an exam where everyone is, is treated fairly. That's my number one uh, thing. And I, I, I'm worried about uh, making my exam vulnerable to easy manipulation. So that's what I'm thinking about in the weeks to come. 
would it be possible like to, I mean, if you had like a series, I don't know how many questions your, your law exams are, they, I'm assuming there's a large number of questions, but like, is it a matter of like, instead of having a hundred questions, you design 200 questions and then give every student a random number of questions? Yeah, that, that that's one way. I hadn't thought about that, but you're right, randomizing the questions. But again, that imposes like <laughs> writing multiple questions huge. is so yeah. hard. Mm-hmm. Like I struggle to come up with 10. I only give 10 and it's so hard to make them good questions. And I but inevitably get with, one or two wrong. But coming up with and, 30 and or yeah. something. Yeah. And then just kind of shuffling. So like no student has exactly that's, the same time. That's, that's not a bad idea. You're probably right in that the opportunity to examine differently does. It's right. I should be looking at all forms. I shouldn't just throw something out. So I should take my own advice. And finally, uh, David, do you want, do you, what's your advice here for um, uh, people who are worried about either exams or marking? Blow them up. I would love okay. if we could just blow up exams. Uh, Typically, no, we don't get, like uh, blowing things up at Intrepid Podcast, but that's uh, that's new. Please go ahead. <laughs> Look, I mean, I think, uh, again, I'm just being facetious. I mean, you know, my own personal pedagogical preference is that, you know, we don't do exams. I don't think they're really effective learning moments. Um, but they're a part of an important part of our, our sort of normal life as academics. So let's, how do we, how do we adapt in this moment? I think I come back again to my, you know, starting off principle, let's keep it simple. Um, you know, if you, if you can do a take-home exam, then let's do that with the academic integrity uh, statement. Absolutely. I think those are, re- those are really smart ideas. If you can do a multiple choice quiz um, or a multiple choice approach, like Peter was suggesting, but, you know, with an enhanced format, yes, absolutely a great idea. But we have to create the randomness to it, right, to get over this opportunity for students to, to share. So that does involve creating a few more questions. Um, Steve Sadovan and I, in our course uh, this past term in international relations theory at, at Carleton, we did we did that. We used an enhanced multiple choice type model, and we just developed more questions. And, and the learning management system allowed us to do uh, a randomized approach, and we found uh, that it worked really, really well. And the students uh, weren't getting the same uh, exam or the same sort of quiz, so they didn't they didn't have uh, we didn't have that problem of uh, sharing sharing responses. I mean, I think the the challenge in this moment is we're just not going to be able to do the face-to-face. The promises of online proctoring, I think, are on many levels exaggerated, Um, particularly in this moment as everybody is going to be looking to it. These online proctoring opportunities, um, they require a huge amount of technology, Uh, cameras set up, um, downloading of software onto computers, losing control of, of your own desktop, um, which comes with security and privacy concerns too, in a big way. So, um, again, keep it simple. If we can, if we can do some uh, minor adjustments through the use of the learning management system or uh, the various platforms we have, then let, let's do that. And Stephanie, maybe I could just jump in, inspired by these comments. I think if, if I were preparing uh, my hypothetical exam in these situations, so hypothetical exams, we use them often in law schools. They're they're basically a fact pattern. Uh, and then students are supposed to apply the law to those. That's facts. basically our uh, basically every single one of our Christmas episodes <laughs> right, is right. a hypothetical, except it's insane. So yeah. Well, the exams are like them, but anyway, I would probably come up with ones a couple of variations on the same question, where I would it would look very very similar to any student who was uh, reading it, but I would change just enough of the facts in the different versions that it would have very different legal implications, and so students wouldn't know which version they're having. I would know because I would code it in a way that I would know, but the students wouldn't know. And that, I think, would trip up students who might be inclined very carelessly to collaborate. 
Okay, well, I mean, unless, sorry, does anyone else have any other points? Aside from the fact that I broke my promise to use the words national security in some way, I feel like I, I feel like on this podcast, so I, I just have failed in that obligation. Well, we'll make sure to never have you on again, <laughs> um, unless somehow cats become a national security threat, which I, they are to my allergies, but that's fine. So it's, uh, it, no, but honestly, I, you know, we're in some crazy times, some crazy situations. This is not a normal material, but I think uh, Craig in particular was very moved to try and put something out there to assist his colleagues, our colleagues, you know, so feel free to, to, to reach out to, I think anyone here. Uh, I know, uh, David, you're pretty busy trying to help um, everyone out at this time in your role. Um, as assistant VP. So, um, but uh, hopefully there were some good tips in here. Uh, I know you guys are coming up with an open source document and perhaps, um, you know, I've written down some ideas here too. So perhaps I can help add to that um, and uh, that there'll be a bunch of resources. Who knows? Maybe we have a whole new model of academic collaboration come out of the current nightmare we're in. Yeah. And, and our law school document uh, went live and I'll tweet out the link. It's a, uh, it's a Google doc. And so I'll just, uh, I'll tweet out the, the link so everyone can view it who's interested. Great. Well, thank you guys so much for uh, lending us your time on a Sunday. I mean, I guess you're not rushing to work tomorrow or anything, but um, we will probably be rushing to answer a lot of questions from concerned students and even some colleagues. So thank you very much. And uh, hopefully uh, this, this was of assistance to our audience. Thanks, everyone. 